Well, today we are in part two of our series called The Kingdom. And the reason that we are talking about this is because Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than he talked about anything else. It's almost like he seemingly couldn't stop talking about the kingdom of God. That's how important it was to him. Uh, most of his time, uh, most of his words, most of his energy were spent talking about the kingdom of God. It, it was at the heart of everything he said. And when you understand that, you begin to hear what he said differently. It, it was the purpose behind everything he did. And when you know that, you begin to see what Jesus did in a very different light. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the gospel that we're going to work our way throughout this series, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the kingdom of God is mentioned over 50 times. That means it's mentioned in most of our Bibles more than once a page. So that means that as Matthew is telling his story about the life and the ministry of Jesus, uh, he uses the kingdom of God as the thread that he's going to weave throughout this story. As he gives us the biography of Jesus, he's going to use the kingdom of God as a thread that he weaves throughout his story to tell us the story that he intends for us to hear. So when Matthew talks about the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus that you could hear on any given day, at any given place, at any given time, when he sums up the message of Jesus, this is how Matthew summed it up in Matthew chapter four. He said, from that time on, from the time that Jesus went public in his ministry, uh, from the moment that he was presented by his cousin John the Baptist, after his baptism and his preaching ministry begins, from that time on, as a point of redundancy, as a point that kept reoccurring and reoccurring and reoccurring, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew is being really clear that this was the constant theme of Jesus' teaching. Uh, the message was this, stop, listen, uh, pay attention. Something has happened that's gonna cause us all to rethink and redefine everything. Uh, something has happened, this was Jesus' message, something has happened that's gonna make you think differently about God, about yourself, about others, and about the world where you live. Something's gonna, gonna change your perspective about everything, your, your perspective about the past, your past and the past. It's gonna change your perspective about the present. It's gonna change your perspective about the future to come. So stop, listen, pay attention. Something has happened that's gonna force you to make a life-defining decision. Something has happened that's gonna demand that you and I, that we choose sides, that we ultimately declare our allegiance and our loyalty because that's how the kingdom works. And that's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel of Matthew was simply this, the kingdom had come near. The kingdom had come near because the king had come near and there would be no neutral ground. And that's the story that Matthew is pinning. That's the story that Matthew is telling. He's telling us about Jesus's message, a message that would not allow for non-decision. You just can't sit back and say, I'm not gonna do anything with this. I'm not gonna do anything about this. Jesus's message would not allow for neutrality. It would be a message that could not be ignored because that's how kingdoms work. 
Kingdoms do not cultivate neutrality. Kingdoms cultivate allegiances and loyalties. So when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, everybody knew what he was saying when he said what he said. That's why it attracted some and that's why it offended others. Now, it's also really important as we talk about the kingdom of God to realize and understand that Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom of God because it was some new creative concept that he constructed or some new innovative term that he coined. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God because it's an idea and it's a concept that's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the idea of the kingdom of God, it is the foundational framework for the Old Testament. It is the overarching narrative of the Old Testament. So, you know, you may be here this morning, either in London or Somerset or Williamsburg or there in Middlesbrough, and you're brand new to church or you're brand new to the Bible and, and you're not that familiar or not that comfortable, you know, about the Old Testament because you're not that sure what it's about. Let me tell you what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament is the story of Israel. And in the Old Testament, here's what we find. We find that Israel is God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. That's the storyline. Israel is God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. Uh, and we find the story of how God promised Abraham, one particular man, he promised him a family, he promised him a nation, he promised him a kingdom. Now, I'm just gonna keep on driving this into your head and heart because this is so important. And you say, why is this so important? If you're a mom or a dad, this is important to you so that you can tell the story of the scripture to your children and to your grandchildren one day. This is important even if you're not a parent, if you're just a follower of Jesus so that you can better understand this narrative that we're all a part of. If you're trying to get to know the scriptures and read the scripture, this is important so that you can know how to make sense and how to file things away in certain categories. God promised Abraham a family, a nation, and a kingdom. And the Old Testament is the story of that. It's a story that tells us that a thousand years after God promised Abraham a kingdom, that kingdom was actually born because we find over and over again, God is a God who keeps his promises. Now, after the kingdom of Israel was born, perhaps the most beloved king that Israel would ever have was the sheep herding, giant killing, music playing, poetry writing, King David. Some of the most fascinating and most interesting reading in all of the Old Testament is about David that fills so much of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, uh, the books that we find in the Old Testament. The thing about David that all of us need to understand, and, and maybe not all of us do, David was a descendant of Abraham. He had to be. He, he was Jewish. Uh, he was from the tribe of Judah, which was a royal producing tribe. And he was from the line of Jesse, his father. Now, last week we talked about how God made King David a promise that one day one of his descendants, one of his sons, would be the final Jewish king who would sit on a throne over a kingdom that would never end. And so then came Solomon and then came civil war and then came the period of the prophets and, and a period of about 300 years of this unending cycle of rebellion and revival, rebellion and revival, rebellion followed by revival, and revival followed by rebellion, only to be followed by revival again. And, and this was what went on for 300 years as the people of God vacillated between commitment and complacency. Uh, now that should be a very relevant part of the scripture for all of us because we all know what it's like to vacillate between commitment and complacency. To be committed in one season and complacent in another. 
to, to be rebellious in one season and to experience a personal revival in another, to be passionate about our faith in one season, but only to be apathetic about our faith in another. So this 300 year period of time uh, in the Old Testament, when it tells us about God's people Israel, uh, this is no different than many of our own personal stories. Uh, just this cycle that we vacillate between commitment and complacency, rebellion and revival. And this storyline, it just, it continues and it continues right up until the time of Israel's three final kings. Uh, the first of those kings was a guy by the name of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. And he was basically a puppet king uh, that was put in place by the empire of Egypt. But the empire of Egypt uh, ultimately succumbed to the empire of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt, took it over. And on his way out, he thought to himself, I think I'll, I'll make a pit stop in Jerusalem and I'll take it over as well. And so he invaded the city of Jerusalem. And he took the best and the brightest captive of which the prophet Daniel was, was part of that in that first invasion. Uh, Jehoiakim, uh, somewhere along that time, he, he was killed and his son Jehoiakim actually took over. Uh, and this guy, uh, he only reigned about three months uh, until he was taken captive by the Babylonians. And this happened during another invasion uh, when a young priest by the name of Ezekiel was taken captive back to Babylon. So Jehoiakim, he, he is taken back with so many other prisoners of war um, now to live under the rule and the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about this guy in just a moment because trust me when I tell you, are you listening? Trust me when I tell you there's something really important that many of us have missed in the Old Testament about this guy that has so much to do with the kingdom of God in the gospel of Matthew. The guy who takes over next is a guy by the name of King Zedekiah. He, he's 21 and when he becomes king, nobody needs to become king at 21. He's stubborn. He refuses to listen to the prophets like Jeremiah. And because he keeps rebellion, rebelling and the people keep rebelling, uh, this is what the historian says happened next, that God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah and his family, they fled. They tried to get away from the Babylonians, but they were caught on the plains of Jericho. And Nebuchadnezzar has Zedekiah's sons killed in front of him. Now think about that. I mean, had his sons killed in front of him and then he plucked out Zedekiah's eyes so that his sons laying dead would be the last thing that he would ever see. And Zedekiah was hauled off to Babylon in shackles as a portrait of an avoidable tragedy that could have been avoided had he just surrendered and had the people just repent. And so this is the story of the final Jewish king that was taken captive. It's a, it's a fascinating period of history. And I tell you all of that so that I can go back and circle around to tell you what the final book of Kings in the Old Testament says as it comes to an end. This is what the historian writes. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, 37 years after he was taken out of Jerusalem as a prisoner of war, back to Babylon. During the year of Awa Marduk, when he became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than the other kings who were with him in Babylon. 
So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Now, here's what the historian is doing. And this is why the Old Testament is not just a group of stories. It is one story. The writer is making a point to show that the line of David has not been destroyed. The royal line of David's succession has not been destroyed. That means that hope for a future king who is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David, someone out of the tribe of Judah, someone who, from, who comes from the line of Jesse, that the hope of a future king is still alive. The promise of God is still alive. Now, when Matthew writes his gospel, he knows this. He knows this. The audience that Jesus spoke to, they know this. They know it's been 500 years since a descendant of David has set upon the throne of Israel. So it's no accident, it's no coincidence that when Matthew begins his gospel, he picks up his pen and he says to himself, where do I wanna begin? Where do I wanna start? And, and this is where he starts. Matthew 1, verse one. Uh, verses that many of us skip over, but this is, this is how he started. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and if you're here and you're wondering what's a genealogy, it's all, it's the begats, you know, so-and-so begat and they begat and they begat. There's a whole lot of begatting going on in the scripture. People had a lot of time on their hand. You know, it got dark early, so you begat. And so there's a whole lot of begatting and there's a lot of records about that begatting. You say, well, why in the world did Matthew start here? Because if you're telling the story of a king, if you're telling the story of the succession of a king, one thing matters, genealogy matters. Pedigree is paramount when you tell the story of who the true, legitimate, final Jewish king, the ultimate son of David. When you're telling that story, pedigree matters, genealogy matters. So Matthew starts off and he says, I'm gonna tell you the story of Jesus, the king. And you need to know that he is a descendant of David and he is a descendant of Abraham, because if he wasn't, he could not be king. So then he tells all of these people in chapter one who Jesus is descended from. There's some good people, there's some bad people, and it's a testament of Jesus, this, this king who will also be friend to sinners, and there's sinners in his pedigree, there's kings in his pedigree, and it's just an amazing thing. You should take time and you should read it sometime. But that's where he begins, with a genealogy, because when you're telling the story of a king, genealogies matter. Now, then he goes into chapter two, and this is gonna be a little weird for some of us today, or, or this is gonna kind of feel refreshing because we're gonna look at a passage of scripture that normally we never look at except in one particular month of the year, the month of December. But if we're gonna tell the story of the kingdom of God, if we're gonna tell the story that Matthew is intending to tell, it, it would be malpractice of me uh, to go from Matthew chapter four forward if we don't go back to the very beginning, because if we're gonna work our way through Matthew, we need to know why he says what he says. And we need to know why he started where he started. So as he's telling the story of a king who is the rightful descendant of David, who is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, who is the final Jewish king, and not only the king of Israel, but king somehow of the entire world, Matthew starts chapter two and he says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, I told you, 
It's so strange for us in February to be talking about something that we normally only talk about at Christmas or we talk about in December. But we're gonna look at this with brand new eyes because Matthew is telling us about the kingdom of God. Jesus showed up preaching. Hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the story that Matthew didn't start in chapter four. This is the story that Matthew started in chapter one. So he introduces us to who's on the throne when Jesus is born, King Herod, this political genius, this, this intelligent man. Uh, he's not a Jew. That means he is not the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He's married into an influential family. That's how he's got to where he is because he's also a very, a very astute politician. He's, he's a great orator. He's, he's a soldier. He's an architect. He's a, he's a builder. He built seaports. He built the temple there in Jerusalem. Uh, he's built fortresses. I mean, there's so much that you can even go to Israel still today and see that, that Herod built and still see the ruins of it. He's erratic. Uh, he's also paranoid, he's jealous, he's heartless, he's bloodthirsty, and maybe, just maybe, a bit psychotic. Uh, Herod, as, as we are introduced to him, not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but also in history, he was a man who was willing to do anything to cling to his throne, to cling to his power, to cling to his kingdom. Uh, matter of fact, history tells us that at one point, Herod killed 45 of the 70 Supreme Court members in Jerusalem uh, just because he didn't want to lose too much power to the Supreme Court. So he killed 45 of the 70. Uh, he killed at one point his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law who happened to be high priest. He killed three of his sons. He killed two thirds of the rabbis in Jerusalem. I mean, this is a guy who's gonna do anything not to lose his place on the throne. This is a guy that will do anything to secure up his own kingdom. Now, at about this time, he's around 70. He's in excruciating pain. He's, he's dying from kidney disease. His body's probably wrecked with infection. Uh, there's lots of things going on, and he is as paranoid as he has ever been. When he receives information, when he receives word, when he receives news that's gonna shake him to his core. And the news was a new king has been born. A new king has been born, and this new king is in diapers. This new king is a toddler. And so Matthew, he, he keeps going. He says, Magi came from the east of Jerusalem and they asked Herod, where is the one who has been, listen to this language that Matthew uses. This is not coincidental. The one who has been born king of the Jews. The one who has a legitimate claim to the throne. The one who has the genealogy and the pedigree the one who is descended from Abraham and from David out of the tribe of Judah from the line of Jesse, the one who has a legitimate claim to the throne. Where has he been born? Because the inference is Herod didn't have this claim to the throne. Now the Magi or the wise men, they show up about a year or so after Jesus has been born. A little bit about them, which is really interesting. They're, they're kind of this mysterious, but, but kind of really just interesting uh, group of people to read about in history. We first find them in history around 7 BC, so about seven centuries before all of this has taken place in the first century. They're a priestly political class of Parthians who, who live to the far east. 
they're a hereditary priesthood. So you have to be born into it, almost like the Arianic priesthood, the descendants of Aaron in the Old Testament. Uh, they are skilled in astronomy. So the skies and the stars and the constellations are very important to them. Um, they had a sacrificial system, much like the Jews. And a lot of people believe that they were monotheistic. So they're, it's a very unique group of people. Uh, they're a powerful group. Uh, they're actually like political advisors, and, and they were powerful in Babylon and also in Persia. And, and here's the thing. No one really was able to become king without their approval. Now, a lot of people believe that, that this group of people, that their origins go all the way back to Babylon and that perhaps they were taught by Daniel, the prophet. Last week, we looked at uh, a prophecy that Daniel had made about a king that was going to be born and rule the world and rule over a kingdom that would never end. And, and perhaps it's really likely that Daniel in Babylon really founded th this group or influenced this group by telling them about a future coming king. So this group of magi, what you need to know about them, they were kingmakers. The magi were kingmakers. And so here are these kingmakers, they show up in Jerusalem to the illegitimate king of the Jews, Herod. And not only have the Magi showed up and now they are just driving Herod crazy when he hears this news. There's also, we know from history during this time, there is this, there is this growing expectation that something big, something unique, something special is gonna happen in this part of the world. Suetonius, in his historical volume on the life of Vespasian, he said this, he said, there had spread all over the East an old and established belief that it was fated. This was the belief at this time, that at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world, and this is not Bible, this is just secular historians from this time. Tacitus, in, in his history's volume, says, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. To throw one more on there, Josephus, the historian in the War of the Jews, he said that the Jews had the belief that about that time, the one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth. So no wonder Matthew, with, with the expectation that was already brewing, and with these kingmakers coming to Jerusalem, no wonder, he said, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why? Because there is a threat to what? His kingdom. And that threat is just five miles away. There was a threat to his autonomy. There was a threat to his throne. There was a threat to his own rule and reign. And he doesn't like it. And time out and an FYI, neither do we. And neither did many of the people that Jesus is going to give this message of repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Many in the religious establishment will not like this message as well. And just like Herod is agitated and terrified, many throughout the gospels will be as well. And many today are still agitated and terrified at the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near because it is a threat to their autonomy. It is a threat to their kingdom and their power and their independence. Nothing has changed since then when it comes to the message of Jesus. 
And so Herod is agitated. And it says, when he had called together all the peoples, chief priests and teachers of the law, he's asked them, where is this Messiah? Where is this king to be born? Because he knew the Old Testament scriptures had promised this. And they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then Matthew does what he does throughout the gospel. He reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches a corollary or a connection and he pulls the voice of the prophet into real time because these things that were happening were new, but yet they were promised from of old. So he reaches back and he quotes the prophet Micah where Micah said, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, a king, a sovereign, who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, shepherd was also in many cases just another word for king. Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Another way of saying it and being true to the text is, the Lord is my king. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my king, I shall not want. He leads me, he guides me, he protects me. It's true of a shepherd. It's true of a king because kings were thought of as a type of shepherd. So Micah says, and the Old Testament scholars, they tell Herod, hey, yeah, our Old Testament scriptures, our scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, they predict that a ruler above rulers will be born. A king above all kings will be born. A shepherd to the people of Israel and the world will be born. And he will be born in Bethlehem. And so paranoid, insecure Herod, He's given the right information. And you know what the information that he's receiving is? The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. It has come so near that it's five miles away in Bethlehem. The kingdom of God has come near. And Herod, it's gonna demand a choice. Herod, it's gonna demand that a side must be chosen by you. Your allegiance, Herod, must be declared because that's what happens when the kingdom of God comes near. You have to choose. You have to pick a side. You have to declare your allegiance. And then it says, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem because they told him, and they said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. And so Herod, he's, he's trying to play this game because he's threatened. And it says that after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it arose, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And, and then listen to how these magi, these kingmakers, look at how they respond. It says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child, the one who had been born king with his mother Mary, and they bowed down because that's what you do in the presence of a king, of a sovereign. You bow down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures because kings deserve treasures, right? They're the ones who receive treasures and protect treasures. Then they opened their treasures and they presented this king, this toddler king, this one born king with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As one scholar said, gifts that were fit for a king. Because these magi, these kingmakers, they realized and they recognized who they were in the presence of and they responded accordingly. They realized on some level that the kingdom of God had come near 
And they knew that they had to declare their allegiance. They had to declare their loyalty. They had to pick a side. They had to make a decision. So they bowed their knee and they gave their best because what was in their hand was a reflection of what was in their heart. And when they bowed down and worshiped him, this is important. This is the story Matthew's telling. They were abdicating their right to rule their own life. They bowed their knee in allegiance to the king, the king of their life. They brought their kingdoms and they laid them low so that the kingdom of God could swallow up their own personal, independent, insignificant kingdoms. And they declared their ultimate allegiance and loyalty to the king and his kingdom. And Matthew, he's telling the story of the kingdom of God and he tells it from the very beginning. And he says, when Herod though realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. The Magi, you can't fool Magi, come on now. You can't fool Magi, you, you can try, but Herod, you're smart, but you can't fool Magi. They're, what are they? Wise men. You can't fool wise men. You can fool a fool, but you can't fool wise men. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. You remember this. And its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Knowing Herod, this is not surprising. This is not unthinkable, but clinging to power and clinging to his own kingdom, it drove Herod to do unthinkable things, unhealthy things, unholy things. And can I tell you, can I just, can I be honest with me and can I be honest with you and can I be honest with all of us that whenever we cling to power, whenever we cling to our own kingdom, whenever we cling to our own throne, it drives you, it drives me, it drives us to do unthinkable, unhealthy, unholy things, just like it did Herod. When we try to protect our kingdom, we will do so at all costs. We will hurt ourselves and we will hurt others to protect our kingdoms. Nothing was gonna stand in the way of Herod's kingdom. Nobody was gonna get in the way of Herod's rule and reign. Certainly not one born king of the Jew. He wasn't going to bow his knee to anyone. He wasn't going to surrender his kingdom to anyone. He wasn't going to get off the throne for anyone. It was all about him. It was all about his kingdom. It was all about what he wanted to be right and what he wanted to be wrong, what he wanted to be good, what he wanted to be evil. It was all about his own standards, his own ethic, it was all about doing what he wanted to do, what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it with whoever he wanted to do it with. That's what it was about for Herod. That's what it can sometimes be for some of us. He wasn't about to surrender his kingdom to anyone. And that's his story. It says, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt because God had warned them to go to Egypt because Herod was gonna try to kill the child. So an angel said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Now, Herod is so crazy, but before Herod died, he knew he was about to die. So he arrested all the, the most influential, some of the most influential men of the city of Jerusalem, some of the most beloved men of the city of Jerusalem. 
And the reason that he arrested them and put them in prison was that he wanted to make sure that when he died, he gave orders that those men were to be murdered as well because he knew that there would be mourning in the streets of Jerusalem. There would be tears shed in the streets of Jerusalem when he died, if he killed the most beloved and the most influential of the city because he knew that he was unloved. He knew that he was unwanted and he knew who he was in his heart of hearts. But when he died, his men ignored his orders and let those men go. And this is the story of the first king in Matthew's story, the story of King Herod, a man whose greatest allegiance was to himself, his own kingdom, his own throne. Today, Herod's kingdom, it's gone. I've, I've been there in Jerusalem, I've been outside of Jerusalem, I've seen the buildings, many of which Herod built. And today, they're in ruins. The only reason that we know in many cases about the kingdom of Herod is because of the baby that was born five miles away who was born king of the Jews. Herod's kingdom got swallowed up in the kingdom of God. Jesus, who was born king of the Jews, he, he grows up, he matures. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So seek God's kingdom first. Love one another best because this is the law of the kingdom. And Jesus says so many things that we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks. We're gonna talk about the Sermon on the Mount when he gives us the ethics of the kingdom and the culture of the kingdom. We're gonna talk about the law of the kingdom that he gives us, the mysteries of the kingdom in chapter 13 and the parables that he spoke. How religion is the enemy of the kingdom. But one of the most sobering things that Jesus, the one born king, one of the most sobering things he said was later on in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? Someone like Herod, yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus knows that we all, we all wanna save our lives. We all wanna preserve it. We, we don't wanna lose it. But Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you gotta be willing to lose it. You gotta be willing to give up control, give up your autonomy, give up your independence, give up your kingdom. And when you're willing to give up your life, you will find a life like you have never imagined. A life of joy and peace and contentment and righteousness for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I want you to imagine that you live all of your life for you. You sit on the throne, you live for your kingdom and your kingdom only. And in the end, you get to gain it all. All that you ever wanted to do, you got to do it all. What you wanted to do, how you wanted to do it, with who you wanted to do it with, you got it all. Except at the end, you had to forfeit your soul. Jesus takes all of us to the edge of life and says, 
If that's you, if you decide to be king or queen of your own life and you do what you want, how you want, and then you lose your soul, at that moment that you lose your soul, what would you do? What would you give to get it back? And Jesus knew what the answer for all of us would be. In that moment, in that moment, the answer would be, I would do anything. I would do everything. There would be no price too high to get my soul back, to get my life back. And what Jesus was talking, is, talking about ultimately is who we decide to worship, who we decide to bow our knee to. He's talking about who sits on the throne of our lives. You see, we worship whatever we get our identity from, where we draw our worth from, what we place our hopes on, what we place our trust in what we give our best to. That's really what we worship. Really in the end, like Herod, it's the same for all of us. It comes down to either my kingdom or thy kingdom. My kingdom or thy kingdom. And the ugly inconvenient truth that Matthew puts in our face from the very beginning is this right here. The greatest threat to my kingdom is Jesus. Jesus was the greatest threat to Herod's kingdom. The kingdom of God had come near to Herod and a choice had to be made. Allegiances had to be declared and he declared his. He chose sides and he chose himself and he lost his soul. But Jesus says, If you'll allow me to be your king, to be your sovereign, if you're willing to bow the knee and surrender your life, your dreams, your desires, your passion, your body, your whims, if you're willing to surrender them to me in a way that you can't even dream, you will find your life and you will keep your soul So the problem, or really more, it's the choice. My kingdom or your kingdom, God? Jesus said, repent, stop, the kingdom has come near. What's the choice gonna be? Will I resist or will I worship? Will I bow the knee or will I protect my kingdom at all costs? You see, we love to think of Jesus as friend. We love to think of Jesus as savior, as teacher, as the one who loves me, the one who forgives me, the one who's patient with me. We love to think about Jesus in those terms and all of them are true, but it gets a bit uncomfortable when we remind ourselves that he is the one who has been born king. He is sovereign. He is all powerful and I will either bow my knee to his authority or I will live in rebellion and I will reject the king who can bring me life and joy and peace 
Yeah, he's my savior. He's my friend. He's my teacher. He's the one who loves me and forgives me and is patient with me, but he's also my king. He is a reigning monarch. He is a reigning sovereign. And that sometimes can be a little bit more difficult to cozy up to. So here's what I would love for you to do in this moment. Just bow your head. At all of our churches, just bow your head in this moment and close your eyes. I want to ask you, whose kingdom are you living for? Really? Yours or God's? Are, are you making your own decisions based on what you want, when you want, how you want it? Or are you surrendering to the authority of the king? Do you need to repent, change your thinking, change your behavior because the kingdom of heaven has come near? And maybe today you need to redeclare your allegiance, your loyalty to King Jesus. Maybe today you need to step off the throne of your life and rededicate your life to your king. Repledge your allegiance to your king. Because your kingdom and my kingdom is much too small of a kingdom to live for, to die protecting. And whether we bow the knee, and if we choose not to, one day my kingdom, it's gonna be over, it's gonna fade away, it's gonna get swallowed up in a kingdom that will never end. So Jesus invites me to bow the knee in this life because the kingdom of heaven has come near. To live under his rule and his reign because when we live under his rule and reign, it's a life. It's actually the life that we've always wanted. It's what we went looking for, but in all the wrong places. So today, maybe you need to rededicate. Maybe you need to redeclare your allegiance. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus to be Lord, to be king of your life. And I, I wanna invite you to pray that prayer just now, right now. Just pray it, repeat it after me. In your own heart, you can whisper it, say, Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe that Jesus came because he loved me to die for my sin in my place, that he was raised from the dead so that I could be forgiven fully, freely, forever, invited into your kingdom. And so today I receive that gift of grace. In just a moment, we're gonna sing at all of our churches. And if you wanna come forward and pray with one of our pastors, if if you wanna take a moment and just pray by yourself to say, God, today I'm recommitting, I'm redeclaring my allegiance to you. I've been doing my own thing and it's not working out. I know it won't work out. Feel free to come. If you've trusted Christ today and you wanna pray about that with someone, feel free to come. Heavenly Father, take this message and speak it to our hearts, speak it to our souls. The kingdom of God has come near and we must declare our allegiance. We must declare our loyalties. We must choose sides. Today, Father, if we say no to ourselves, if we say no to our lives, we will find life. But if we protect our kingdom, if we say no to you, God, we will lose our lives. 
And what good will it be if we gain everything else but forfeit our souls? Speak, Father, to our hearts in this moment. In Jesus' name.